Well, I don't know how or why I remember this, but my 10th grade European history teacher used to always say, proper prior preparation prevents poor performance. Did you catch that? Proper prior preparation prevents poor performance. I think we can attest that's true. In other words, your performance is almost always tied to your preparation. That's true physically. There's a reason uh, military service starts with boot camp. Fresh recruits, they spend months training before they send them off to war, conditioning before they get close to the battlefield. You've got to prepare before you perform. What would happen if we gave new soldiers a rifle and just sent them into battle? It would be disastrous. It would be a slaughter. They wouldn't stand a chance. But in this regard, this is where the proud really meet their demise. Pride most often results in overconfidence, which in turn leads to neglect of preparation. When you're self-confident, you think you can handle anything. So what need do you have of preparation? But this is how a person gets set up for failure. And pretend you're a runner. You haven't run in a long time, but you used to be very athletic when you were younger. You decide it's time to get back into running, and there's a marathon coming up in a couple of weeks or a couple of months, so you sign up. But you do zero preparation. No running, no conditioning, no dieting. You reason, you know, why bother? You're still athletic. You're still in shape. You reason yourself, you can do this. Your pride leads to self-confidence, which is an overconfidence. And that in turn leads you to neglect preparation. Well, race day comes, and we all know what's going to happen. It'd be amazing if you made it even two miles. Even for the most athletic person, something like a marathon, you don't just show up to a marathon. You've got to strenuously prepare and plan ahead and condition. Showing up unprepared, it's, it's laughable, it's foolish, it's, it's a recipe for failure. You can't just show up and expect to succeed. Yet this is how all too many treat their Christian races. They think they're fine, they think they're strong. After all, they're, they're doing pretty good. They're not going through any major sins. In fact, they're doing a lot better than most other Christians they know. So a spiritual pride forms, inevitably that pride leads to a self-confidence, which is an overconfidence. And that overconfidence in turn results in them neglecting spiritual preparedness. They're not spiritually training. They're not disciplining themselves. They're not dieting on the word each day that by it they may grow in respect to their salvation. They're not exercising through prayer each day that they may have endurance. They're lulled into a spiritual slumber and and pretty soon they're caught unaware. The the day will come. They will be tested. They'll be tried. They'll be tempted. And being so unprepared, they they won't stand a chance. And they will fall. And so will you, if this is you. Your good intentions will only take you so far. If you're not doing what God calls you to do and being spiritually prepared for your race, Well, at the very least, you should not be so surprised at your spiritual failures. This might be a lesson you need to learn, and it's a lesson you're going to get this morning from Mark chapter 14. Take your Bibles, open them there this morning to Mark chapter 14. Here we find the well-known account of Peter's threefold denial. This is one of the few episodes that's recorded in all four Gospels. That right there tells you something about its importance. In studying Mark, we've already come to know Peter as the top disciple. He's their leader. He's our model in many respects. But that fact merely intensifies his fall. If the strongest disciple broke down and denied Christ, what does that say about us? How can we hope to do much better? Peter's failure, therefore, serves to caution us against spiritual pride, presumption, and unpreparedness. Mark 14, 66 through 72 is the passage. But first, let me catch up to speed and reset the stage for you. Not long ago, we saw Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And what was he doing? He was watching and praying, wrestling with the Father, seeking strength to endure the tsunami of suffering that was coming upon him. Meanwhile, while he was praying, what were the disciples doing? They were not watching and praying. They were sleeping. Three times Jesus prayed and three times he came back and he found them sleeping. 
notably Peter. Well, just as Jesus finishes praying, Judas Iscariot, the betrayer, shows up. And standing behind him are somewhere between 200 to 600 Roman soldiers and the religious leaders of Israel. Finally, they found a way to arrest Jesus away from the public eye. But as Christ's enemies surround him, his friends flee from him. The disciples, their courage is gone. They all run away as Jesus is bound, including Peter. Jesus is then bound and led back to Jerusalem to the palace complex of the high priest. And as we studied last week, this begins the Jewish phase of his trial. Caiaphas, the high priest, and the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court, they lead this complete sham mock trial to bring up false evidence against Jesus, false testimony, to convict him of a crime worthy of death, even though he was, in fact, guiltless. And that's what they eventually do. Even though Jesus remained silent most of that night when Caiaphas asked him directly, are you the Christ, the Son of God? Jesus couldn't help but answer with the truth. So he said, I am. Finally, Jesus confessed his own true identity, but they were too hardened to see it, so they convicted him of blasphemy. They instantly found Jesus worthy of death. And even though he was the Son of God, they regarded him as if he were the son of the devil. Jesus is blindfolded, beaten, mocked, and spat upon by the religious leaders of Israel. That's where we left off last time. It's really just the beginning, though. That's the Jewish phase of his trial. Pretty soon we'll see the Roman phase of his trial. But right before that, in in our passage today, at the very end of Mark, we have this short little episode of Peter denying Jesus three times. Jesus already predicted this would happen, so we've been expecting this for quite some time, but now we see how it unfolds in the most pitiful of ways. We find that as Jesus was on trial, so was Peter, in a way. Jesus was being tried and tested. Peter was being tried and tested. Whereas Jesus, though, stood for the truth, Peter fell. And right as Jesus is being beaten and mocked as a prophet, his prophecy about Peter denying him three times comes true. And the result is that Peter, the rock, turns to sand and blows away. How does this happen? Why does this happen? What does this mean for us? Well, let's dive into this text. Let's find out exactly what led to Peter denying his Lord three times. Our text this morning starts in verse 66, but but first, join me back in verse 53. A little bit more context. Think of verse 53 of Mark 14. It says, They led Jesus away to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes gathered together. Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. So as we learned last week, after his arrest, Jesus, he's marched back to Jerusalem. But instead of standing trial in the temple during daylight hours, he's taken to the home of the high priest to stand trial in the middle of night because they want to do this away from the public eye. We also learned last time the home of the high priest It was more like a complex, had this large courtyard in the middle, surrounded by all these big homes, mansions. One of them was the mansion of the high priest. Another one belonged to Annas, that's Caiaphas' father, the former high priest. So Jesus first goes in and he stands trial before Annas, and then he's marched across that courtyard to stand trial before Caiaphas and the whole Sanhedrin, like their supreme court. He's found guilty at around... 3 a.m., at which point they take him back outside to the courtyard and they take turns beating him. When they finally grow tired of this, Jesus is sent to a holding room where he awaits daylight, at which point they will quickly reconvene. They will sentence him to death with lightning speed and ship him off to the Romans. So if you get all that, it's against this backdrop that we now observe Peter 
At the same time as Jesus was being tried and tested, we learned Peter was being tried and tested too. Just hours earlier, as Jesus was being arrested, Peter was the one who took out a sword to fight for Jesus and he cut off the ear of the high priest's slave. Peter boasted the loudest, claimed he would fight for Jesus, never abandon him. But when Jesus rebuked his violence, said, put away your sword. And Peter learned Jesus wasn't going to put up a fight. His courage fled from him. And so Peter fled and the rest did as well. Now, after this, what happened to the other disciples? We don't know. Never told. But evidently, Peter regained some courage. His conscience was plaguing him because he had gone back on his commitment to follow Christ to the end. So he evidently mustered up some more courage and he decides to come back around to follow Jesus, but from a distance. That's what verse 54 says. Peter had followed him at a distance. You can sense in this Peter's inner struggle between faith and fear. He wants to make good on his vow to follow Jesus. But he's scared for his life. So for the time being, Peter just sinks back. It's much safer to follow Jesus from the sidelines. Peter then watches as Jesus gets escorted into the high priest's complex And Peter manages to sneak inside. Now you might wonder, how how does he do that? Well, John in his gospel tells us Peter was not actually allowed into the high priest's home. But according to John 18, another disciple was secretly following Jesus as well. And that was John. And John, for some reason, John 18, 15 says, John was known to the high priest, so he was allowed inside. And verse 16 goes on to say that the other disciple, John, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. So John actually brought Peter inside. So that's how Peter gets inside. Once he's inside, he starts to warm himself around one of the fires that were lit by the guards and the servants. He's he's standing there and he's hoping he won't get noticed. He just wants to see what's going to happen. Hopefully no one will recognize him, but it doesn't quite work out that way. So now we get to our text. Look at verse 66. It says, As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came to him. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus the Nazarene. According to John, that's the same servant girl who was at the door, keeping the door. And this girl, she watched as, as Peter, or rather as John brought Peter inside. She caught a glimpse of Peter's face. How John escaped notice and suspicion, we're not told. But this slave girl recognized Peter as having been with Jesus. Probably she saw them together in the temple as Jesus taught that week earlier. But her curiosity was aroused. So she leaves the door and she walks over to the fire. She sees Peter's face illumined by the fire and her suspicions are confirmed. So she singles Peter out and says before everyone huddled around the fire, she says to him, you, you were with Jesus the Nazarene. And how does Peter respond? Verse 68. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you're talking about. And he went out onto the porch. This is, of course, denial number one. Peter, he's startled. He's taken aback. He's been found out. His fear, of course, is being found guilty by association. After the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, John Wilkes Booth was on the run. And for those few days, everybody was completely disassociating with him. Obviously, the last thing you want to be is associated with the most wanted criminal in the nation. And in that courtyard, it felt like Jesus was the most wanted criminal in the nation. And Peter was just scared. His flesh is crying out for safety. So to preserve himself, he claims total 
ignorance. That's the nature of his first denial. Two verbs are used emphatically. He says, I neither know nor understand what you're talking about. He doesn't know Jesus. He claims he doesn't even know what the servant girl is talking about. Peter is claiming to be completely disassociated from Jesus, such that he doesn't even know Jesus is on trial. Now, according to Luke, it appears the servant girl persists. She turns after this to the men sitting around the fire, and she says, this man was with him too. To this, Peter replies before all of them. He says, women, or women, I do not know him. And what we actually find is that Peter, that night, denied Jesus many, many times. Yes, there were three times, three episodes, during which Peter denied the Lord. But in each episode, he's denying him repeatedly. Each episode, he is repeatedly disavowing association with Jesus. And this is just episode number one. Well, things were getting too hot for Peter by that fire in more ways than one. So he moves position. Verse 68 says he goes out to the porch. That's actually talking about the entryway. He goes close to that door to the street. He's trying to get away from that little girl and that little crowd behind that fire. So he moves position, hopes no one will notice him again. But it It doesn't work out. It doesn't last long. Look at verse 69. It says, The servant girl saw him and began once more to say to the bystanders, This is one of them. But again, he denied it. Here, let me put together Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to give you the whole picture. Peter, he's moved to the entryway. He's behind another fire. He's around another fire. And this time, it's the same servant girl. She is persistent. And she goes up to him again. She finds him again. This time, she doesn't say anything to Peter. But she says to the little crowd of bystanders, she says to them, this is one of them. You can can sense this lynch mob mentality is forming toward the disciples. At the same time, a second servant girl also recognizes Peter. And she joins in the chorus with the first girl. The second girl testifies, and she says to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And to pile it on, according to Luke, a third person, a man, he also, at this point, recognizes Jesus, and he confirms what the girls have been declaring. He says, to Peter, you are one of them. And so in this second episode, Peter's being accosted by at least three different people, and they're all doggedly telling him, like, no, you're, you're one of them. You are with him. You're a disciple. We, we know you. Peter is starting to melt by that second fire. And so like verse 70 says, again, he denied it. This verb is in the imperfect. So it's, another, it's a repeated denial. He's just, to all three of these people, maybe more, he's just saying, no, no, I don't know what you're talking about. I, I'm not with them. I don't know him. Repeatedly Denying the Lord. This is his second denial. After this, one hour passes, according to Luke. Apparently, Peter had denied Jesus so convincingly that they left him alone for an hour. But time was not on his side, and more people now believed he was an intruder in their midst. And so keep looking at verse 70. It says, And after a little while, that's an hour, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, surely you are one of them, for you're a Galilean too. As Mark lets on, again, this wasn't just one person saying this, but many. In Luke, one man, he's insistently accusing Peter. He knows for sure that Peter's one of them. In Matthew, The bystanders add that Peter's Galilean accent has given him away. There would have been no Galilean Jews serving in the high priest's courtyard. The the Jews in Jerusalem, they looked down on those Gentile defiled Galilean Jews. So they didn't belong there. If you're a Galilean Jew, you would have stuck out in the high priest's courtyard. Furthermore, the Galileans were known for their thick accent. So you really stuck out. 
It's like today, how easy would it be for us to identify someone by their thick southern accent? They just kind of stick out. And to make matters even worse for Peter, listen to this. According to John, in this third episode, someone else recognizes Peter as having been with Jesus in the garden when he was arrested. And so listen to John 18:26. It says one of the slaves of the high priest being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off said, "Did I not see you in the garden with him?" Let's think about that. That's bad. This is big trouble for Peter now. He's in for it. In the garden Indeed, Peter was the one who cut off the ear of one of the slaves of the high priest. And now here's this guy's relative. And he's like, wait, didn't I see you in the garden with the sword cutting off my relative's ear? This is that guy. And granted, it was dark and poorly lit in the garden, but he's pretty sure Peter's the guy. So it's, it's just mounting. This pressure now is mounting against Peter. This mob is forming around him. The pressure is turning up. So what does he do? Verse 71. It says, But he began to curse and swear. I do not know this man that you're talking about. That's a pretty strong verse. When you see those words curse and swear, you probably think profanity because that's how we use those words today. But no, Peter was not actually using profanity. He was doing something much worse. The word for curse is anathematizo. It's the word we get anathema from. Peter was calling down a divine curse upon himself if he was lying. The word for swear is Peter, he's giving a solemn pledge, an oath of truthfulness. Basically, it's the equivalent of him putting his right hand on the Bible and saying, I swear I do not know this man. This is repeated. This is emphatic. This is his third denial. And right right as the words come out of his mouth, right as he says it, what happens? Verse 72 Immediately, a rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him, before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he began to weep. The prophecy had been fulfilled. Peter's fall was complete. Luke tells us he wept bitterly, He just crumpled down like a child under his father's discipline. Luke tells us even more. This is a terrifying verse. Right as Peter denied Jesus the third time and the rooster crowed. According to Luke 22 verse 61, at that very moment, it says, Then the Lord looked, or rather the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Think about that. Here's the scene. Jesus, he's just been found guilty by this mock trial. So they take him back outside to the courtyard to beat him. And as they get ready, they're about to blindfold him. As they get ready, at that very moment, we have to imagine Jesus, as he walks outside, he hears in the distance the cries, the screams of Peter yelling, I I don't know that man. I do not know him. And we have to imagine Jesus turning his head and looking in the direction of those yells. He knows it's Peter. And for one split second, the eyes of Jesus and Peter lock. And I'm sure for Peter, that that felt like an eternity. He stared into the face of his master, but he was in in the process of denying him. A tidal wave of guilt then crushes Peter and breaks him to a thousand pieces. He's, he's broken after this. Surely he just wanted to crawl into a hole and die. And after this, Jesus is blindfolded, and they proceed to beat him. I'm sure that at this point, the attention of the crowds shifts away from Peter and onto Jesus. So now Peter's safe now. 
He got what he wanted. He's safe. All the attention is now on Jesus as Peter watches them start to beat him. But now his courage is gone. Now he doesn't say anything. He's not going to do anything. There's no sword of defense now. No bold claim to die with Jesus now. He's, he's got nothing left. He's, he's broken. Peter runs away. He abandons Jesus once more and goes into hiding. And this is the last we hear of Peter until the resurrection. This is how the disciple whom Jesus called the rock turned into sand. Well, that's as far as we'll get in the text for this morning. I wanted to save some time, though. Uh, it's a short text. It's it's strong, though. It, it kind of speaks for itself. But I wanted to save us some time here to reflect on this little episode. Why is this here? Why are we told about this? Why is, why is Peter's denial recorded in all four of the Gospels and count? Is it that important? Why is this so important for us to hear? It's not like a happy story. Until you get to the resurrection, there is a happy ending. But why is this here? Well, this passage is so key because it tells us so much about ourselves and about our Savior. I'm sure many lessons stem from this text, but two in particular jump off of the pages and into our lives. We have to come away with this pair of lessons from Peter's denials. These two lessons, they're like walking sticks, one in your right hand, one in your left. These help you in your walk. If you don't have these, your walk is going to be hard. You're going to stumble. You're going to fall like Peter did. But with these, you will not. We are meant to learn from his failure as a cautionary tale that we might not fall. So with the time we have left, I want to give you a pair of, I think, really essential lessons that stem from Peter's failure. We, we need these. We need, we need to hear this text. Number one is this. From Peter's three denials, we find, number one, a caution against spiritual pride. A caution against spiritual pride. We can't help but wonder how this happened to Peter. Peter, he was a true believer. He's the guy confessing Jesus as Christ, as the Son of God. Peter left everything to follow him. Peter is like a model disciple. That's what makes his fall all the more disturbing. Because we witness the top disciple crash and burn. So if that happened to him, what's to say won't happen to us? What's to keep us from denying our Lord or falling into some huge sin? How are we supposed to do better? See, that's why we we need to figure out how this happened to Peter, how this might happen to us, that we can avoid it. And I want to give you that answer. How does a mighty tree fall over? Because its roots are decayed. And so let's ask, what is the root cause of Peter's fall? What's his root problem? And it is spiritual pride. The root cause of Peter's fall was spiritual pride. What is spiritual pride? It's a high view of self. It's a confidence in self, a reliance on self, and the power of one's own flesh. Like Proverbs 16:18 says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Now you hear this, you might wonder, what's the big deal? What's wrong with self-confidence? What's wrong with self-reliance? It sounds like the American spirit. So why is this a bad thing? <clears throat> Excuse me. But spiritually speaking, no, this is disastrous. It's actually dangerous to convince someone that they can do something when in fact they cannot. How criminal would it be if I convinced my four-year-old daughter that she could drive my car? That would be utterly misplaced confidence. She's not physically able to do that. And that would result in possibly death. 
spiritually. The same is true when it comes to us overcoming sin. That's not something we are able to do on our own. We don't have that power. We can't handle that by ourselves. We need Christ and His power, His victory over sin. But see, herein lies the problem. When someone like Peter is puffed up in pride, he thinks he can handle it on his own. Well, then he will forego reliance on the Lord and spiritual preparation. The result is that when a time of testing comes, the only power he has is his own, the power of his own flesh. But how long do you think that will last? Not very long. And the power of the Lord is absent since he was not relying on the Lord or preparing. Your power and your good intentions will only take you so far. And then you will find, like Peter, great is your fall. Didn't Peter evidence his spiritual pride and all of his boasting? Just look at Mark 14. Look back at verse 29. What was he saying just before this? Peter said to Jesus, Even though all may fall away, Yet I will not. All these other disciples, these these chumps, they'll fall away. But not me. I will never fall away. It says verse 31. Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Even in the face of Christ's words, you see his overconfidence in self. Not spiritual pride led Peter and the others to neglect the spiritual preparation Jesus thrust upon them. Immediately after this, after that statement, Jesus took them to the garden to pray. What did Jesus tell the disciples to do in the garden? Luke 22:40. he told them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus knew a great time of tempting and testing was coming upon the disciples. And they needed to spiritually prepare by seeking the Lord for strength. Isn't that what Jesus himself was doing? As we studied, Jesus was divine, but he faced the cross in his human nature alone. Meaning he wasn't relying on the power of his divine nature to endure the cross. That's why we find him praying to his father for strength to endure the cross. Jesus displayed this amazing dependence on the Father for strength. And we are meant to mimic that because we are doubly weak. We, like Jesus, have the inherent weakness of our humanity. But unlike Jesus, we also have the sinful flesh. Part of us wants to sin. And so all the more, we need to watch and pray. Isn't that what Jesus told the disciples to do in the garden when he found them sleeping? Look at Mark 14, look at verse 37. Remember when he found them? He says he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing. but The flesh is weak. Again, your good intentions, the power of your flesh will only take you so far. Rather, you must prepare by depending on the Lord. Imagine imagine you're a world champion wrestler and next month you have a fight, a wrestling match. In your mind, you size up your opponent. You think, I'm bigger, faster, stronger than this guy. I can beat him. In fact, I've beaten him before. It's a rematch. You are totally confident in your ability, so you boast in pride. And that pride leads you to skip your training. You don't prepare for the fight. You just walk in. You're like, I've beaten him before. I can beat him again. You're confident you're going to win. But when that moment comes and you start to wrestle, what's going to happen? Your lack of conditioning will show. You will quickly be pinned down. And you'll wonder what, what, what happened. 
You see, physically, we know there's a connection between your preparation and your performance. And spiritually, the same is true. Peter and the disciples, they needed to spiritually prepare for the massive wrestling match against sin, Satan, and the world that was coming upon them. They needed to prepare if they were going to hope to perform. The same is true for us. That is, after all, how we express our reliance on the Lord. That we are doing what he tells us to do to overcome and to avoid temptation. So let me, let me ask for you, what does that look like? What does that spiritual preparation look like for us that we may not come into temptation, that we may not fall like Peter fell to the time of testing? What, what do we do? You could answer that in many big ways. Let me just keep it simple. Just go back to what Jesus told them to do. Just watch and pray. Simple. Just just keep watch and pray. For starters, you need to be constantly watchful. This is talking about a mental alertness toward sin. Your eyes are open. You're constantly scanning the horizon for a test or a trial or a temptation that might come. The whole New Testament calls us to this 24-7 sober-minded alertness. Why? Because we're in hostile territory. Yes, Jesus won absolute victory over our sin on the cross. But until he returns, this world is still under Satan's domain. And we still have the sinful flesh. Therefore, you have to be constantly on watch for sin and temptation because you're, you're not in heaven yet. We are still in hostile territory. So be mindful of it. Know it. Know your times of weakness. Watch out. Be prepared. Peter, learn from his fall and learn from his words. Later in life, he learned his lesson. And so what does he tell us? 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. What does he say? He says, be of sober spirit. Be on the alert Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. I used to go mountain biking up in the hills of Burbank, and usually I would be listening to music, not paying attention, just, you know, thinking about things or listening to a sermon, something like that. I remember one day in particular, as I got to the trailhead, there was a big sign that said, Warning, Mountain Lion Sighting. That means a mountain lion was recently in the area. I'd been spotted, probably still nearby. Now, mountain lions, they're not as dangerous as real lions. But there's still plenty of reports of them pouncing on some unsuspecting hiker and give him a tear, you know what I'm saying. But, well, what did I do? Well, I went up the trail anyway. But I have to tell you, that, that, that morning I, I did not listen to music. I wanted my ears open. And I was a little paranoid. I was listening for rustling in the branches and the, and, the, and the leaves. I also have to tell you, I was not too focused on the bike trail that morning. My eyes were just constantly scanning every brush, every bush, to just look out. I felt like I had to be on red alert. It was, I had to be ready, I felt. Spiritually, that, that's what Christ is telling us to do with our lives 24-7. Don't get caught sleeping or unaware. You have to be watchful. And this ties in with number two, prayer. Be prayerful. Prayer is the chief expression of your spiritual humility because you are actively seeking the Lord for his strength. This is all the more useful when you know, you know you're going to be tested. You know you're walking into a battle. So pray beforehand. Is to consider, are there times when you know you're going to be tempted? Are there circumstances of life where you know there's going to be temptation there? Well, identify those times and then pray beforehand for strength to endure and to escape. Maybe you and your spouse always argue at night before bed. Maybe when you're home alone with the computer, 
you fall into lust. Or maybe when you're with that one friend, you always gossip. Whatever it is, where are your testing grounds? Find out and prepare by praying, asking the Lord to deliver you or to give you the strength to endure. But do you think you can handle it on your own in the confidence, the power of your flesh? Learn from Peter and his fall. And again, learn from Peter's words. First Peter chapter 4, verse 7. He says, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Prayer, it's that main channel through which God's power flows down to us, enabling us to walk rightly before him. Peter, being puffed up in pride, he lost the battle to watch and to pray. He wasn't counting on the Lord's strength. So, of course, he lost the battle against sin and temptation. Of course. Most battles are determined long beforehand by the conditioning of the soldiers. It's no different with the spiritual battleground. Yet all too many Christians, they just walk into battle after battle totally unaware, totally unprepared. And then they keep losing the battle against sin. They wonder, why? What's going on? Why can't I defeat this sin? Let me tell you something. When when you fall, or when someone falls into some great sin, there is always a long string of failures that came first. In other words, sins of omission always precede sins of commission. And if you don't know what that means, I'll explain. Sins of commission, those are things you do, things you actively do. And we think these are the worst sins, like lust, anger, murder, adultery, violence, hurtful speech. I mean, the list goes on. Things you actively do. But in reality, just as bad are sins of omission, things you fail to do. And most often, a person has a string of such failures, sins of omission, that finally lead to some great deed of sin. For example, they fail to keep watch. They fail to pray. They fail to be constantly nourished on the word of God that they may grow in respect to salvation. They fail to make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. They fail to encourage others and be encouraged by others so that you would not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. They fail to be involved in a local church. They fail to sit under the preaching of God's word, whereby they receive teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, The list goes on. These are all sins of omission. And if you continually fail here, not only are you living in sin, you're becoming spiritually weaker and weaker and weaker. You're malnourished. You're unprepared. Then suddenly you find yourself thrust into this wrestling match with sin. And in reality, you don't stand a chance because you are so unprepared relying on your own flesh. But still, you wonder as you get pinned down, why is this happening? Why am I still losing the battle against sin? Why why can't I overcome this issue in my life? Well, I wonder. You didn't watch. You didn't pray. You didn't count on the Lord for strength. You didn't do a whole list of things. Now, I want to clarify. Just in case you feel you're getting mixed signals, It sounds like Peter's problem was self-reliance. And so the solution is what? Just to try harder? Is that it? No, just, just listen. You have to get the balance between God's work and your work in your sanctification, your, your Christian life. That's a big topic. Let me just give you one little verse to explain that. Philippians 4.13. Philippians 4.13 where Paul says this, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Think about that. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We can do all things. In fact, we must do all things. God calls us 
to do all things. We have to pray. We have to strive. We have to watch. We have to be in scripture. We have to fellowship. The list goes on. We, we, we are called to do these things and we must. But in what, in what power? Not according to our own strength, but through him who strengthens us. We work as God works. We need God's power in our lives. The good news is that he's already supplied all the power we need in Christ. Jesus died on the cross to accomplish victory over our sin. He overwhelmingly overcame all of our sin. And now the Holy Spirit within us delivers God's power to us. Now God is at work in us. And it's in that spirit which he calls us to walk, to live before him. This is where humility comes into play, though. If the root problem of our failures is likewise spiritual pride, then humility is the cure. You have to first own up to your spiritual weakness. The flesh flesh is weak. My flesh is weak. You have to understand that. We're corrupt. We're fallen. We, we don't have this power on our own to know Christ or to walk with him daily. But that's why we cling to Christ. We need to be in him and the power of his salvation. But that's something only the humble will do, recognizing their desperate need for that Savior. Peter learned that lesson the hard way. He fell hard, but he learned. He learned, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We need that grace. The humble find it. We've already gained eternal victory over sin in Christ. Now God enables us to experience daily victory over sin, also in Christ as we walk according to the strength which he supplies. He tells us, you got to walk. But we must do this in the strength he supplies. Otherwise, you will quickly fall. So will you do this? Will you be encouraged to renew your walk in a humble dependence on the Lord? I've got to say, I don't know about you, but studying the fall of Peter stings. Right? It, this stings. This stings us because as we look at Peter, we know we're, we're no better. Do we not all fall short? Have we not all stumbled in, in many ways? If you're humble, you know the answer to that question. And so th- this conviction from Peter's failure, it stings us because We, too, have failed our Lord many times. We have all denied him by word or by deed. doesn't matter. I want to say this to you, though. First, first, don't don't turn away from that conviction. It stings, but embrace it. Let it settle in. That's how God corrects his people through his word. And perhaps you need to be corrected this morning. In fact, we all do, myself included. We all constantly need this correction of the word. And second, let me say, though, to be encouraged and to be comforted. Because if you embrace the sting that conviction brings and repent, if you're renewed in your heart of seeking the Lord, doesn't that make you Peter and not Judas? And was not Peter restored? Peter fell far and he fell hard. But Jesus picked him back up and fully restored him. And therein lies our comfort as well. Maybe you've likewise fallen hard into sin. But you have to know that in Christ there's unending forgiveness and grace and mercy. So whatever you do, don't turn away from him. For in him there's everlasting comfort for all of us spiritual failures. And that's what we all are. We're all spiritual failures. But in Christ, we have overcome.
That's the good news of the gospel. This whole message today means nothing without that good news. It's that good news which forms the second lesson that stems from Peter's denials. I told you there were two lessons that come from his denial. The first is a caution against spiritual pride. The second is a comfort for the spiritual failure. But I have to tell you that that second lesson, which is the gospel, it's so important, we have to let it shine. And so we're not going to talk about it now. We're not going to tack it on to the last five minutes. We're going to come back next week. We're going to spend all of our time next week studying that second lesson, a comfort for spiritual failure. So understand, this was very much part one, an incomplete sermon, if you will, but come back next week for a special Sunday, Easter Sunday. And we will be devoting all of our time, not to Peter's failure, but to Peter's Savior, his risen Savior, our risen Savior. He's he's the only hope we have to overcome. But in him, we already have overcome. So don't miss, don't miss next week. Until then, watch and pray. Let's do that now. Our great God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we, th- we always thank you for our, our time in your word. What does your word do for us? Sometimes it cuts us open. Sometimes it, it performs a, a spiritual surgery on our hearts and we need that. Your word reproves us. It corrects us. It rebukes us. But isn't that a great mercy and a grace that you give? That you love us enough to not leave us in sin. You love us enough like a father to give us the the tender discipline of your word. And sometimes we need, we all need to take stock of our own lives, to watch and pray, to consider our spiritual preparation and our dependence on Christ for all things. We need a savior. And we thank you for providing You've already sent him. He's already come. He's already overcome. And in him, we are overwhelmingly conquerors. So may we just rest in him. Find our comfort in him. And may that strengthen us to walk. To do so watchfully. To do so prayerfully. We can do all things. We must. Through the strength that you provide. We thank you for that. It's already given to us in Christ. He's all we would rather have. And so may we rest in him as we depart this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.